Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of the Adventures in Angular podcast. This week on our panel we have Aaron Frost. Hello. Joe Eames. Hey there. John Papa. Hey everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Scott Allen. Greetings. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. I run my own company, Code LLC, and do some consulting in the mid-Atlantic area of the United States and do some Pluralsight videos once in a while. Awesome. Uh, before we get going, I also want to let people know that we are go- or I'm pulling together a, a roundtable discussion about the mobile JavaScript uh, frameworks like Cordoba and Ionic and uh, Famous. And so if you want to know more about it, you can text MobileJS to the short code, and this is a full phone number, 38470, and uh, you'll get more information about that. We're going to be doing it on the 5th of November, so uh, if you're getting this afterward, then we're sorry, but we'll do other events. So today's episode is about ES6 and AngularJS. That's right. Do you want to kind of give us a starting point there? Uh, oh, sure. Maybe explain what it is that we're really talking about or give us a little more depth there. I can do that. Earlier this year, I started looking at what was going on with ECMAScript 6, and I started to get a little bit excited about the language because JavaScript's been around for a while now, but it hasn't evolved very much. And in fact, you JavaScript Jabber guys had Brendan Eich on this year, and that was just a fantastic interview. He went through a lot of the history of JavaScript, and we know that there was this period of time where the standards organization was trying to put something together for ECMAScript 4, and it just sort of all fell apart. And we lost like the significant chunk of time where the JavaScript language could have improved or added features. But that's all in the past, and it's finally moving forward now. And I started actually working on an ECMAScript 6 course with Joe on Pluralsight and getting genuinely excited about these features. Like, I wish I was writing this today. And at the same time, I was working on an application that is sold to hospitals in the United States. So it's a commercial application, and it's been around now about 11 years and when you dig into some of the code for this application on the server side code it doesn't have a lot of javascript to it yet uh, some of that code is 11 years old it's built with the microsoft stack and the code is c-sharp version one that was a dramatically different language than what we have today with the latest version of c-sharp but as i was looking at this, at this application and we're, we're planning on adding uh, pockets of angular into this application i started thinking it sure would be a shame if we wrote everything with today's JavaScript and just like this code we have now, if someone comes to this application five years from now and they look at it and they think, geez, I wish these people had written with, with ECMAScript 6. I started thinking after doing this course and seeing all the tools and working with all this stuff that maybe we really should look at trying to start writing with ECMAScript 6 today so that three years from now, four years from now, when it's a lot more commonplace, this code will be a lot easier to work with. Is that a good background for you? Yeah, that makes sense. So ECMAScript yeah. is the next version of JavaScript. Nope. ECMAScript 6. Isn't that what yep. I said? Nope. You just said ECMAScript. Oh, ECMAScript 6. Yeah, ECMAScript is the standard that JavaScript is based on. Version 6 is the next version. 
And so you want to write in tomorrow's JavaScript because it's nicer and because that's what people are going to be writing in in the future. Did I sum that up nicely? That's exactly right. There are so many features in ECMAScript 6 that are very exciting. They just make code. It's nothing that we couldn't do today. It's just that the syntax is better. It's easier to read. It's easier to write. The intention is very revealing. Some things are small. Some things are large. So a small thing would be like default parameters, much easier to write with ECMAScript 6, much more obvious when you look at a function definition. And that's a small thing. But then big things would be like generators, iterators, classes. So now that you can write a class in JavaScript, some people find that distasteful, but I think it's it's genuinely useful. So Scott, let me let me kind of just jump in there. There, that's kind of what I'm seeing too with ECMAScript six. Is there's a lot of things I think are pretty wicked cool, but there's others that you know honestly I don't really feel like I missed at all with uh, previous versions of JavaScript, such as class. So you know, not even just class itself, but the inheritance model, for example. I mean, people generally feel like I like classes or I don't in JavaScript, but getting into inheritance, one thing I found coming from the .NET world over to JavaScript heavily in the last couple of years is. At first, I thought I'd miss regular inheritance. And now I find that I really don't ever miss inheritance. So curious what your thoughts are there. I would definitely agree with that. I've long been a fan of composition over inheritance. So bring together small pieces instead of trying to use inheritance to reuse code. I think, unfortunately, inheritance has been a selling point for object-oriented programming that has just been overemphasized for decades. And I think it's just over the last eight or 10 years that people have come around to say, you know, maybe inheritance isn't that great. So that being said, when I first saw the, the class feature in ES6, I thought, hmm, do I want to use this? Do I not want to use this? And I have to say that for building an abstraction, I think classes can be pretty useful because it's, the code sort of jumps out at you and it says, here's an abstraction to represent something, uh, an abstraction to represent local storage or an abstraction to represent a movie that we're going to eventually data bind onto the screen. And I don't need inheritance for any of that. And in fact, in some places, this whole class thing in ES6 works out pretty well. For instance, specifically when we're talking about Angular, when you register a controller with Angular and you say angular.module.controller, what you are really registering is a constructor function. And when you create a class, the symbol for that class, whatever the class name is, is a constructor function. And if you can imagine the, the typical code that you have inside of a JavaScript file when you're creating a controller, and John, I know you have tried to address this in some of the coding standards that you've come up with Angular, and you've done a really good job with that. There's the sort of area in the controller where you want to initialize model stuff, and then there's typically some method calls that you need to kick something off to call into a service to get a, you know, an HTTP call started or something like that. The class syntax, I found, is actually really nice for that because... Yes, the class name is your constructor function, but you also have this dedicated keyword constructor where you add a, a function to this class that is invoked when someone uses the new keyword against your constructor function. And it's a really nice place to put your initialization logic and maybe list all of the things that are going to be data bound against this. And yes, then I, I love that. I mean, the, the, the initialization yes. stuff and the constructors and... I think that, you know, not having to do some of the patterns we do in JavaScript, I think these features really shine a light on the goodness of classes. But the part I worry about a lot, honestly, is when you give somebody a tool that does 20 things, which I'm just making up a number here, like a class, people can tend to abuse it and do things I don't think they should. And I, I tend to see a lot of ES6 code right now 
that I'm running across where people are doing a lot of inheritance and super and they're going right back into that world. And that's where I kind of get a little worried, iffy, if you may, pun intended, on (laughs) (laughs) having too much in my class. I love the idea of a class being a controller and getting rid of this crazy modularity thing. But I think there's got to be ways we can kind of control it a little bit so that people can build things that don't become too complex and we end up with a, you know, seven layers of class inheritance hell. I can't wait for the first time I maintain code like that. (laughs) So... I'm over here biting my tongue because I've got some opinions on classes as well, but I'm excited to hear how we're going to use this stuff in Angular. So I'm I'm going to avoid the whole ES6 discussion, <laughs> and hopefully we can talk about how it works into Angular. I think that's sure. actually a good point. How does ES6 power up Angular? Well, I don't think there's anything specific to ES6 that, let's say, would make an Angular experience better or worse. I don't know how to explain this, but you know, ECMAScript 6 is the language, and I think the language is more beautiful. Therefore, the code that you're going to write to power Angular will be more beautiful and expressive and elegant and so forth. So that being said, there's some things that I think map pretty well. For instance, using a class for a controller, I think if that's an approach that you want to do, I think that actually works pretty well. Um, using a class for a service and registering it with the dot .service API, that also works really well. And then there's just all the, all the other little things that fall into place like spreads and default parameters and error functions that you can, you can use in any type of JavaScript code and they'll work pretty well with the Angular stuff too. And can I say, oh, thank G for having arrow functions. So, so happy to have those. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is that yeah, just the arrow it. syntax or is there more to it than that? There's more to it. Okay. Yeah, there's a little more. I mean, essentially it's a lambda, ex- what in some languages you would call it okay. a lambda expression or some languages call it a fat arrow things like that. But um, one thing the arrow function does give you special in JavaScript is that it lexically binds to the outer scopes this function, uh, this reference. I'm still debating this one, actually. You can use a this reference inside of a callback if it's an arrow function and not have to worry about the this reference pointing to something else. Yeah, so basically, in other words, everywhere in your code where you said var me equals this so that you could later on say me dot something without referring to the wrong this, you don't have to do that anymore with arrow functions. It keeps its scope on the right this. Yeah, so. which is wonderful, but <laughs> every time I open up a JavaScript file and I say, and I see this dot something, this dot something, there's still something in the back of my mind that's screaming out, oh my gosh, someone's using this, it could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So one other thing that I'm curious about is just the barrier to writing Angular in ES6. And there are a couple of things that come to my mind. One of them is my browser runs ES5, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, do I have to add some extra libraries or something to kind of fill in for the ES6 functionality? You are going to have to have some sort of build process because uh, currently today, because you're going to have to take the JavaScript files that you write in ES6 and somehow transform them into ES5 so that you can deliver them to browsers that are running today. And I think the most popular tool to do that is Tracer. And I know you guys have had a show on that already. Yeah, we did on JavaScript Jabber. Yeah, and that's really easy to, to put into your workflow. I mean, chances are you already have some sort of build system or task runner that's linting files and concatenating files. So this will just be another step of first 
uh, transpiling things from ES6 to ES5. Scott, have you used uh, 6 to 5? I haven't, no. So it's a library, I think Dan Wallin, I believe, I may be incorrectly crediting it, but I think Dan Wallin was telling me he was using 6 to 5, and I checked it out. It looks really interesting. It's, it does a similar thing, turning ES6 code into ES5 code, because I've had my own issues. I love Tracer, but I hate it at the same time. <laughs> um, but this seems to be an alternative, which um, I hadn't heard much about. I'm curious, I mean, have any of you folks used 6 to 5 yet? No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Maybe we'll have to ask Dan about it if, if he indeed was the one who told me. <laughs> He's got a lot of features in there, though. Six to five. Also, it's worth noting that if you're absolutely unable to do any kind of a build process at all, there is so, some libraries, some shim libraries like ES6 shim and others where you can get a few of the pieces of E6 without actually going through a build process. Mm. But it's pretty limiting. Like, like, you have map and set, but you won't get any of the new syntax that makes, like, class and fat arrow and things like that. Right. And there's develop time experience and there's runtime too, right? So, yeah. develop time, you know, use whatever you want to get there, like, like these shims, but runtime, I think we would generally not recommend, you know, putting another library in the browser to make people do that. Yeah, for example, Tracer can actually do that transpilation on the fly. So you can send Equascript's six code to the browser and have the full tracer compiler down there but that's like a megabyte of javascript you talked about not putting in uh shim libraries it is important to note that tracer does have an actual shim library that does have to run it doesn't compile 100 percent of your es6 written code to es5 compatible code for example things like map and set those are objects that just don't exist at all in es5 Right. And there's no analogy to them, so you do need some shimming. So there is some shimming involved even when you're using a, a compiler like Tracer. Right, and the Tracer, Tracer does most of its work on the server with your, yeah, with your build process, but you get a couple of those things shimmed. It's not the full shim. Right, right. right. Yeah. All right, sorry. Then let's move no. on to that other question. Good good point, man. I, I just got way too many questions. So, Scott, where does, this, where does ES6 leave things like um, CoffeeScript and TypeScript and whatever else might be out there in the world? Personally, I think moving forward, people that are happy with TypeScript are still going to be using TypeScript because ECMAScript 6 does give you classes and Lambda expressions, arrow functions, things like that, but doesn't give you a compilation process that checks types and and does any sort of strong typing like you can get with TypeScript. And CoffeeScript, a slightly different flavor of language, and I can see people still using that moving forward too. Is that, yeah. kind of that answer, or that, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of just wondering where that's going to evolve, and because I keep hearing, you know, TypeScript really is on top of ES5 and kind of looks towards being an ES6 compliant and then has a few additional features, yep. but I wonder if that's going to evolve now as well, I mean, more like ES7, is it going to keep jumping? And then there's the CoffeeScript side, which really isn't a superset of JavaScript, it's really just shortcuts for JavaScript. Yeah, maybe I'm describing that really well, but it's a different way of dealing transpilation, and I think people generally created that to find a better way to deal with the issues most developers have in creating JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think so, those concerns will still be there, I guess, is my question? I think so. Maybe when thinking about CoffeeScript, not so much, but definitely TypeScript is, is with types, you know, that's just not something that you get with ES6, and there's a lot of people that want that. So I don't, I don't think they would drop TypeScript in favor of ES6, even though it has a nicer syntax for a lot of things. Gotcha. So on that topic, I think that 
Some people are going to prefer the route of kind of what we've been talking about so far, which is polyfill all your own stuff and, you know, make sure that you've got all the right polyfills and all the right build steps and kind of take care of it on your own. And then there's other people that are going to rather use something like a coffee script or a TypeScript where it's going to take care of that stuff for you and you just write in whatever it is. And it'll worry if you're in ES6 land or ES5 land and, and work the way that it needs to or not. So I think that people using CoffeeScript or TypeScript, and I don't, but I think those people will possibly have an easier time upgrading their stuff to work with ES6 Mm -hmm. than the rest of us will. Again, not advocating for either of those, just saying that that's, I think, how it will work. So Scott, who who should be looking at moving to ES6 and when should they be looking? Like, What's the profile of that team that should be considering it or not considering it? probably wouldn't do it if I didn't expect the code to stick around for a bit because although it's relatively easy, there's not too many hurdles. You you know have to have a build process and do this transpiling and it doesn't really mess up too much of your workflow. If you're just trying to slam something out that, you know, the minimum viable product or something like that, I don't know if it's something I would consider for that sort of project. I think right now it's still forward looking, right? You know, the spec is basically finished, but it's still in the debugging phase, if you will, until the end of next year. Browsers are still slowly putting this stuff together. So we still have some time. Yeah. And as I heard on, I think on JavaScript Jabber, they were talking about ES7 and kind of where that's all heading to. And one thing I worry about with a lot of this ES6 and ES7 talk is how does Angular fit into this picture? And I mean Angular 2, but I mean Angular 1.3. You mentioned how we can use some of this stuff today, but is this something that will... I'm wondering how it's going to change the world of an Angular developer, if at all. Well, that's a good question, and that, you know that's something I'm still really trying to figure out. Again, a lot of this is just syntax. It's things that were possible before, but it's just easier and more intention-revealing. So having all these new syntax features doesn't necessarily make programming in Angular faster or anything like that, but I think it makes the code more readable. And then it's just sort of up to you to figure out, do I want to use a class? Do I also want to use ES6 modules and somehow work them into this thing? It's looking at all these features and figuring out how you want to map them. I guess the biggest thing is, to me, actually, is classes. Do I want to embrace classes or not? Because if you want to embrace classes as a way of building an abstraction, then you'll start thinking of controllers as being a class instance and services as being a class instance. So I think classes is probably the biggest question of how does it fit in i think what scott is saying is true i think everything else just kind of fits in like the rest of its syntax the only real major change like some of those syntax though will change how we write angular for example like when you have a class or a controller function we can do like default values or um we yeah we so we can do default value stuff in functions today and then Angular knows how to inject based on the signature of the function. But if we start putting all sorts of weird default values and, and rest arguments up in our controller functions, the Angular library is not going to know how to parse that stuff out. And we're going to start getting a lot of errors. And so we are going to have limits on what we can use and what we can't use. So, I mean, like you're pretty much going to have to stay away from anywhere. Angular needs to dependency inject anything, if that makes any sense. What do you mean by stay away from? So like if you have a filter or any part of Angular and you want to use like rest arguments in it, that rest argument syntax will likely break the dependency injection engine. Or if you try and like do a default value 
on something that's getting injected. That kind of syntax in the places where the dependency injectors trying to look to see what needs to be injected, those syntaxes like equal signs or like a triple dot or a function call for a default value, those kind of things will likely break Angular's dependency injection system. And so anywhere where a dependency injection function, like a controller, a service, a filter, whatever, you're going to have to stay away from using the new ES6 syntax sugar in those function parameters. Yeah, so true. in your scope functions, like scope.foo equals some random function, you could use it in there, but you couldn't use it on your controller function because those syntaxes will likely break the 1.3 or the 1.2 or the 1.1 dependency injection. So, I mean, I'm just, I was just trying to point out that you can use it. You're likely not going to be able to use most of it. Like if it goes up in your parameters, you can't use it for, it will, it will probably break the dependency injection, but you could use like everything like modules you could use. You can use generators. You could use let, let, let yep, shouldn't I love let. have be a problem. I don't know if classes will work or not. We'd have to test to see how like the native implementation of a class, if you could just swap it out for a controller function. Cause I don't yep. know if those controller functions get newed up. Cause if, if you're they not do. calling, does it call new? Yeah, if you register a controller using the name of your class, it all just works. Oh, okay, Beautiful. good. Beautiful. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Everything is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think I was trying to point that out before, but I might have blitzed through it a little bit too fast. And yeah, so like little things too I think are really helpful. Like you hit on let, and I think people underestimate the value of that even because I myself have seen lots of code where you're trying to scope things and – Again, a lot of people are flooding to JavaScript from Java and .NET and other lands where these issues don't exist. So defining a variable inside of an if statement or other places where you think scope exists, but it doesn't really in JavaScript, I think that's where let's really going to help us create, uh, what did you say, Scott, more beautiful Angular code? <laughs> yeah, more beautiful Angular code, absolutely. Yeah, That sounds like the title of your next course. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to revisit, if it's okay, this, this idea of using a class as a controller. Just because I've gone through like 12 different iterations of what is the best way to create a controller for Angular. And a couple of those iterations involve classes. It's really interesting. When you define a class in ECMAScript 6, the name of that class, that symbol, let's say you write a class called podcast. Podcast is a constructor function. And Angular has always treated the function that you register for a controller as a constructor function. So it uses the new keyword. So it instantiates an instance from that function, right? Yeah, that's actually, I, I never realized that. That is true. Right. I it, didn't even realize it was doing that, but yeah, you're right. It also does that when you call on a module object, if you call module.service to register a service, when it instantiates that service, it takes the function you give it and treats it as a constructor function because it uses the new keyword there. It doesn't do that with factory or value or constant, but it does that with the .service API. So one way to write Angular code in ES6 if you want to embrace classes, is to write controllers as classes and services as classes. And the controller one is interesting to me because I've always felt I've never been happy with the controllers that I write in Angular. There's always something that I look at them and I wish just something was different. I haven't ever been able to quite put my finger on it, but the controllers are this interesting mix of let's initialize binding properties, let's kick off some calls to services, Let's add some methods in so that we can hook up ng-click events. It's just, it's just this mixture of all these things. And I've tried various different approaches to trying to disentangle this. I've tried several different approaches to try to disentangle these things. 
And with classes, one of the nice things I notice is that when you define a class, again, the name of the class is your constructor function, and behind the scenes, there's a constructor function, and that constructor function still has a prototype property, and any methods that you add to that class get attached to the prototype. So it's very similar to what we've been doing in the past, and it's, uh, like Aaron said, like it's syntactic sugar for what we've always been doing. <laughs> but the interesting thing about a class is that there's a dedicated keyword for a constructor, and that is the code that actually gets executed when someone says new podcast, you know, new class instance. And yeah. one of the things I found interesting about writing my Angular code is all of a sudden, oh, now I have a place to put my initialization code. I don't have to worry about where that's going inside of some big iffy or inside of my function. Uh, and it's very easy for me to look at a constructor function and see, oh, here's this property, this property, this property, this property. And then there's a whole bunch of methods defined in the class that are reachable from the view through expressions. There's a couple of good things about this and a couple of bad things about this. And I'll try to wrap this up really quick because I know we're short on time. But one of the things that changes when you use a class and you are writing that constructor method is that that is now your injectable function. So the parameters that you advertise on that constructor method are the things that Angular has to figure out. How do I pass these to you using its injector? And now those things are scoped to that constructor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are you going to do with them? Well, uh, you know, I guess I'll save them as underscore members inside of my object now. Whereas before, you know, when you write Angular controller using ES5 code, you just have a function and things are injected. Then you have, you know, gobs of code inside of there that close around that stuff. You know, I found some benefits to classes in the sense that, oh, I have this nice initialization logic here. And here's a list of all the methods that are going to be available. But there's some downsides too, just in the sense that it's a little harder to form closures around things that you need. You have to think a little more about where you're going to save things like services that you've injected. Hopefully that all makes sense talking yeah. about it while waving my hands on a podcast. <laughs> so, John, in your style guide that you have that everyone loves, you have a syntax for injecting variables that I normally hate. And I tell people, John got everything right besides this. But uh I think that using your injector syntax would probably, for me, I think it would fix the problems that Scott's explaining. And it would also fix my main problem with Angular controllers, which is like people writing code, 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 and then declaring another function and then more code and then more functions and more code. Mm -hmm. So it's just all kind of a combobulated nightmare. Yeah. And ECMAScript 6 classes and really all classes that I've worked with in languages don't let you write that root level code. Like you have to put any code that's going to run has to be in a method that gets called. Mm -hmm. And Angular controllers are just horrible, ugly nightmares the way most people write them where it's function expression, code expression, a watch, more function expression. <laughs> I think classes will clean up the way that people write controllers and yeah, I've actually never been more excited than I am now listening to kind of Scott explain some of the ways it will work. That's cool. I'm excited. Yeah. I, you know, I know John in a style guide talks about in a controller, put all your bindable properties up front. And that's kind of what you can get with the constructor of a class. Yeah. And that's kind of where a lot of the stuff got modeled from. Cause when we create classes, uh, it's not that, you know, it forces you to go there, but that's really what I was looking at was why was it so easy in .NET for me to do this stuff? Well, it kind of, the class structure forced you to put certain things in certain places and make it easier to yeah. read even. Yeah. So that's kind of where some of this came from. It's not what's just, you know, John was getting drunk on a beach one night and said, Hey, let's do that, man. So it's, I was wondering. 
<laughs> you know, and, and honestly, because of the inheritance, you could probably include like some default classes like an angular controller class or mm-hmm. a dependency injection class like or an injectable class where you could extend that for your controller. And, and see, that's where I think inject- when that gets injection. supered up, maybe it takes care of the dependency injection problems for you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's where inheritance, uh, I misspoke, not injection. I think it's where inheritance really makes sense in this mm-hmm. new world with Angular and ES6. Not where you've got, you know, I hate the canonical, hey, you've got mammal and it's got an animal and it's got a dog and it's got a, oh, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Get me out of that world, please. At least on the server side, when I write server side code with languages that have classes, base controller classes have always been helpful. Yeah, I always question myself. Whenever I see, I love base controllers or base classes in general, but I question myself every time I create more than one level of inheritance Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. in any language. And it's not that it's a bad thing. It's just I really want to ask the question, why did I do this? And is it really giving me a value uh, for doing this. And if it's not, then I usually back off it. Yeah, there's dragons in that direction. So yeah. I, I want to ask, are we ever going to get to the point where where we don't have to uh, do the ES6 uh, compiling song and dance? I mean, and it's not just a question of, okay, eventually browsers are going to support ES6, but we're still going to have to deal with older browsers. So when do we start cutting those off and saying, I'm sorry, but you need to upgrade your browser if you're going to make this work? Or are we going to just have polyfills for the difference? Well, I sure hope so. You know, there's this push behind evergreen browsers now, and everyone seems to be trying to keep things updated. So I hope that when my grandkids are programming, they're not looking for transpilers. (laughs) I don't know how long it'll be. So, so Chuck, we're we're kind of in a a similar situation today already with ES5. Mm -hmm. We all use things like Lodash or jQuery that kind of take the normalcy out of programming and like it's all kind of included for you instead of using a radar map we'll use a, a lodash map instead because we don't want to have to detect if the browser has the map function on the array right. like so we're already kind of in this transition phase with es5 granted es5 was a much much smaller release way less ambitious than es6 right mm-hmm. and so es6 is gonna be harder but I think it will just work its way out, and, and I think the tools will make it easier to do, though. The tools in the new language. Cool. The other question I have, and this is something that I think can be answered quickly with a yes or no and some links. Are there any examples out there of people writing Angular right now with ES6? I don't know of any. I, I have looked around a little bit, but I don't see much of it as yet. Okay. Yeah, I've seen very little other than just, you know, examples and demos and things. I, I personally have not written any production apps with ES6 for Angular. Awesome. Yeah. All right, well. So, can I, can I do one last thing before we cut off, Chuck? Yeah, go. I just, we've talked so much about ES6 in here. Can we just give everyone some references? I think you should go look at Joe and Scott's Pluralsight course. And I did a front end masters course last month that will be out in, in December. So if you're sitting here listening to this going, what is ES6? What in the, what in the world are they talking about? There's some really great video content online that you can go and learn about all the new features and consider how you're going to implement it in your Angular apps. So, and I don't, I'll mention, I don't know if you did this in your front end masters course, Aaron, but in our course, we have a whole section at the end. That's just about using ES6 today, how to use transpilers and shims and all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of the relevant point here is how to use it today, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's go ahead and do some picks. John, do you want to start us off with picks? 
Yeah, yeah, I can do that. And I think uh, Aaron hit the, the key ones there, the ES6 courses that both uh, Aaron and Scott and Joe all have, uh, respectfully on Pluralsight and front of the Masters, are excellent resources in general. Something else that I've been playing a little bit with lately is Nightmare JS. Pretty neat stuff, you know, so I've been doing a lot with Phantom lately, uh, doing end-to-end testing, and, you know, it's, it's kind of monotonous at times, and I find Nightmare JS is kind of cool to basically trim down the syntax to, to play with that. And Second thing I'll uh, put out as a pick is I've been doing a lot of research lately on Restify and Koa and Happy and Connect and Express and Happy, uh, I think I already said Happy. Sales or whatever. Uh, just going down the road of, you know, all these different things that serve up APIs in the server. And one thing I didn't really just think I would do coming out of this was think that, you know what, all these are pretty darn cool. Uh, so I, my pick in that case is it's an amazing Node ecosystem that we have to be able to say we can choose Restify, Happy, Koa, any of these guys, and uh, actually build a robust web API out of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm picking Node, man. Nice. Awesome. Do you have a tip? I think, you know, my tip in this case is um, actually use tools like JSCS and JSHint, JSLint, ESLint, because uh, even though you might write good code and solid code, those tools can really help you find issues in your process, especially on large teams. So my tip is all those linting type tools. All right. Aaron, what are your picks? I'm going to pick a project called Angular Custom Elements, which it's a kind of a directive system for Angular 1.2 and 1.3 that allows you to kind of start using some of the web component stuff. And I hate the web component API. I think it's really hard to learn. Uh, I think most people will love it, but putting it behind this Angular Custom Elements will allow you to just write your regular Angular code and take advantage of custom elements in the browser. So yeah, that's that's my pick. And then my tip is make your Angular apps performant. I did a talk at AngularJS Boston last week, and it was epic on performance, so go check it out. Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? So my pick is going to be the movie Fury with Brad Pitt. I just went and saw it last night. Really enjoyed it. It's a lot like uh, Saving Private Ryan in its presentation. So it's kind of a brutal show, but it was, uh, it was a good one. I didn't like it quite as much as I like Saving Private Ryan, but I'm a big fan of World War II military movies, and I really enjoyed it. So that'll be my pick. And for my Angular tip, my tip will be to learn to use Resolve when doing routing. The Resolve mm. feature is really neat. It's very powerful. It can help you when you're doing authentication and authorization or when doing loading screens and it's just a really cool feature so that's my tip is learn to use resolve in routing awesome my pick i'm just going to remind everybody about the mobile js roundtable that we're doing so uh go ahead and check that out again you can just find out about it by texting mobile js it's all one word to 38470 and my tip is is that you can use the angular.module not only to define modules, but also to look them up. And that way you can avoid polluting your global, creating global variables to keep track of your app. So, Scott, what are your picks? Sure. The last book I read I enjoyed it was Lock-In by John Scalzi. Hmm. I was a Robert Heinlein fan growing up, and his books always remind me of some of the Heinlein works because he has the ability to explore social and political issues involving technology, but he does it with a compelling story. Another pick would be PhysicsJS, just something I played around with a few weeks ago or a couple months ago. It can make things move around in a canvas, and it's pretty easy to use. I even had a a blog post back then about how to wrap 
PhysicsJS with some custom directives and services of Angular to make it really easy to use, make it very declarative. And another pick would be, for those people that travel a bit, or even if you don't, travel.stackexchange.com. It's one of those sites that falls under the, the Stack Exchange Stack Overflow umbrella. But it's fascinating if you just want to see different questions and answers about airline luggage rules and people that oh, get into trouble with visas. And sometimes it's just plain funny. I mean, you see people in there about asking questions like, I just bought a live tarantula. Uh, how can <laughs> I take this on an airplane? How, how do I get it home? So <laughs> that's bizarre. And as a tip, something I, I found this week is the browser.pause API. If you're writing protractor tests that aren't working and are driving you crazy, if you call browser.pause, it'll break into the debugger and you can actually play with the developer tools in the browser and play with variables in the in the debugger. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Scott. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Scott. Thank you for having me on the show. This is fun. I enjoy your podcasts, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because we have awesome hosts. All right. Well, I just want to thank everyone again for listening, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.